Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer podcast brought to you from the Granite Exchange studio in the heart of Newry. We are delighted that you could join us today for another episode of Activist Lawyer, where we will be engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts and invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at www.activistlawyer.com. So my name is Sarah Henry and I'm a solicitor practicing in Uri City, having worked with a human rights firm in Dublin for many years and with a number of rights-based organisations and charities. My trustee co-host, Jack McClelland, who is also my legal assistant and is a master's in law student at Queen's University, joins me today as we speak with Dara Macken, partner at Phoenix Law, Belfast. Dara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Jack, thank you for being here today. No problem. So just by way of introduction, Dara Macken has been described as a rising star on an international legal scene and a champion of the cause, the Irish Times and the Parchment. In July 2016, Dara was the first ever Irish-based lawyer to be nominated and in turn to win an award at the prestigious London Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year Awards. He's developed a specialist practice in human rights, public law, actions against public authorities and international law. He continues to appear in some of the most complex inquests and inquiries in both Belfast and Dublin, having recently successfully acted in the reopening of the Stardust inquest and appeared in the Ballymurphy inquest. He's acted in cases at all levels, including the Supreme Courts in London and Dublin, the European Court of Human Rights, the African Commission on Human Rights and the United Nations Special Procedures. In addition to practice, Dara is an Associate Lecturer of Public Law at the University of Ulster and has delivered a number of guest lectures at Cambridge University, Trinity University, Queen's University Belfast and DCU. So thanks, Dara. (laughs) Thanks for coming today Um, and fitting the time to see us on this Friday in the Granite Podcast Studio. So just to start, that was a brief introduction, I think, of, of your work. But just for listeners who aren't perhaps familiar with all of your work, can you let us know maybe a little bit about your background and experience leading you to where you are today, an award-winning human rights lawyer? And I might add, uh, proudly from Newry, big Newry contingent <laughs> here today. <laughs> um, yeah, so obviously I began my career in a predominantly criminal defence firm, um, which is probably where... Um, have to say that my belief and certainly my interest in human rights uh, emanated um, having had the experience of representing some of the people who were probably the most vulnerable, uh, such as people who were being made homeless or people with addiction problems, people victims of domestic violence. I was kind of being uh, at, the, at the cold face of those injustices that mm-hmm. probably made me fixated or certainly focused on f- working towards human rights more generally. And on the back of that, I was probably very lucky to be involved with some families as a result of the obviously the, the conflict in this jurisdiction, um, who were probably the personification of injustice and human rights breaches. Uh, and flowing from that, then um, I've obviously been very lucky to be, uh, and ha- still continue to be lucky to be instructed by some of those families uh, and those victims who unfortunately find themselves in probably the most uh, depressing of circumstances. Mm. Uh, where their human rights are being uh, breached. Yeah, 
gosh. Um, it's intense work, to say the least. I mean, um, you've taken a range of cases, and I think it's fair to say the majority of the high-profile cases, a lot of them have been heavy-hitting, and I'm sure quite emotional. And I, You get to know the clients, and as you said, a lot of them are long-standing cases, so you get to know the families as well. Um, and the repertoire that you've built up normally happens over decades and decades of practice. So you're still quite young, which is which is great. Um, but I'm just wondering how you manage, you know, this particular workload at times. I'm sure it's very pressing and, and difficult work at times with you and your, your colleagues as well in Phoenix Law. I think it feels like decades at this stage. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, it's, it's like anything... Um, you know, you put in what you get out, and unfortunately, when you are lucky enough, uh, as you know, sir, by being instructed in some very important cases, it's crucial that you know, obviously, put the work in to ensure that the right result comes out. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, as many people will appreciate, you know, in this job, it isn't a nine to five job; it's no. the first thing from it, and um, which does have, uh, unfortunately, big burning and big consequences upon, you know, your your personal life, uh, your family life. But I'm I'm very lucky, certainly, mm-hmm. to be surrounded by a very sporting family, a very sporting wife. Uh, yeah. and a very sporting team of colleagues who put in as much as I do and it's that energi- energy that I think you know continues to drive me on um, I'm certainly very lucky like I say that you know when you're surrounded by you know, it's, it's not a one man band it's the furthest thing from it you know I'm only yeah. one of, of a number I'm only one of a team uh, it's that team that makes it uh, that makes Phoenix what it is um, in my view you know when you enter into cases and there's different ex- different examples I've often found that the families and victims who you act for, uh, sometimes their energy is contagious. Uh-huh. And, you know, that drives you on. And sometimes when you're, you know, like I say, I'm lucky that when I go to work, it's something that I feel strongly about. Sure. Um, I'm lucky that I act for people who have a strong connection with. And I've been very lucky in the cases that I've done that mm-hmm. I haven't just developed clients, but I've developed friends. And when you're doing that, you know, it makes it a lot easier to put in the work, to put mm-hmm. in the energy. Uh, and the reality is that, you know, as we all know too too well, that if you don't put the energy in, then fortunately they'll be left uh, to be, or the circumstances will continue. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's uh, it's a no-brainer then. And yeah. right, you know, so some, in some ways it is a situation where you're going, you know, it takes a lot of time and energy. But the other side of it is, I don't look at it like that. I look at it as if we're very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, indeed, it's, it's not a job. It's more than a job at this stage. Uh, and f- so I think it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel, yeah. doesn't feel as strange that you'd ordinarily think. It certainly isn't a nine to five. And that's really interesting that I suppose the client's energy because they're, you know what I mean? These ca- cases are difficult. That drives, helps drive you and your team forward. Um, just to mention a handful of the cases um, that Dara has been involved in. Um, and a couple of them we talked about before in this podcast series. The Sarah Ewart and Amnesty International, that was the abortion litigation case. Um, I mean, the Hooded Men um, and the Glenan series. There's a few that were very much related to the conflict here in Northern Ireland. And you continue to work on these um issues local um and then you had the one that really stands out for me was the Abraham Halawa case um as well as then the Stardust inquest that we maybe will get to in a few minutes um and Lisa Smith there was a few kind of outstanding very very unique cases that you took on as well both north and south and and further afield Dara so your work doesn't just um you know include th- this area but it's been very far reaching um in terms of human rights w- one thing i read recently the stardust inquest um obviously having that reopened and and acting for um the victims in that i mean that's been long standing and ongoing for years 
and tragically um, one of the very vocal campaigners um, passed away recently and I know it's been adjourned and put back a number of times. COVID has obviously played a factor in that. How difficult is it to be involved in, in that type of um, inquest? Well, the Stardust is probably a classic example of exactly what I mentioned. You know, um, When I was first asked to help the Stardust families, uh, for me it was a no-brainer because I'd, I had read, uh, through my own interest, I had read what had gone on before and I have to say I was quite frankly disgusted. Mm-hmm. I think it's a situation whereby it just wouldn't simply be accepted in any other country. Yeah. Uh, certainly no other EU country whereby it's fail investigation after fail investigation. And the ultimate conclusion is we simply don't really know what happened because there further investigations could be done, but we're not going to do them. Mm-hmm. I just quite frankly find that alarming. And when I was asked um, to assist, uh, for me it was a no-brainer. I, d- I did so with um, with great interest. However, on the back of that, um, I have to say I met some very, very formidable people, um, some very tenacious people, one of which you mentioned, Eugene Kelly. Mm-hmm. And um, th- those families, uh, I have to say to their credit, uh, are, are relentless. You know, they, yeah. there's only so many times somebody can be knocked down before getting themselves getting back up. But those families have, through thick and thin, continued, stuck together and fought for what they believe would be truth and justice. And those um, efforts, I believe, have been vindicated by the reopening of the inquest. I have to say that the, the, day, the recent death of Eugene Kelly uh, hit me particularly hard mm-hmm. um, because, you know, Eugene was everything what I believe to be the personification of a human rights uh, defender. Somebody who was hit right at the right at the heart of it by the loss of his brother, he protested through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. He fought through courts. Uh, he took he took on reviews and even sat in protests in the Minister of Justice's office in order all in an attempt to try and seek truth and justice. And he was a relentless fighter. And for him to pass away in the circumstance in which he did before the conclusion of the proceedings, I have to say, comes re- uh, well. It's with a heavy heart that that's happened, mm-hmm. um, and uh, certainly. Uh, Hasn't been an easy few weeks. Certainly not not for me and not for the families who have lost him out because he was a key, per, he was a key key person in the battle. And unfortunately, um, that is unfo- all too often the problem with these yeah. inquests and in- inquiries and investigations into the historical truths where the truth is covered up, mm-hmm. uh, where the truth isn't told, where accountability doesn't happen. Uh, you know there is a, a clear policy, certainly in this jurisdiction in particular, um, by the British government to delay and obfuscate in the hope that families will pass away. And we, we know all too well, particularly in this area, and you mentioned it, you know, the Glenann series, you look at mm-hmm. um, the, the Reavy brothers, uh, you know, you know, very, very close to, uh, something very, very close to my heart uh, with a personal connection with Eugene. But again, you know, unfortunately his mother uh, passed away not that many years ago at the very start of the yeah. litigation, haven't been to the European Court of Human Rights and back, but unfortunately didn't live to see the conclusion of the ongoing review into the Glenann series now, the murder triangle. Um, and it's, you know, unfortunately, th- those instances aren't isolated. Uh, yeah. You know, they're just two of a wide spectrum. Uh, and th- in my view, that makes it all more important as to why you know these human rights investigations need to be expeditious. And it f- certainly, as you know, it's a, yeah. it's a core part of the Human Rights Act that uh, you know, on the Absolutely. European Convention, things need to be done it expeditiously. Just, I mean, it's just so tragic when you think about that and the effort that I mean, they commit their lives to you know having these to having justice heard for their family members who were victims and, and then to pass away and not see it's it just doesn't bear thinking about um but i suppose their legacy continues and you know they have people then picking up um you know to continue the fight i mean it's representative even when you think about the mother and baby homes you know at the minute i mean this 
scandalous behaviour that's been going on in the Republic of Ireland um, around delaying inquest, investigations, cover-ups. Again, victims are, what, in, a lot of them in their 80s or 90s now and have been, you know, working on this for decades and still no justice. So it's just really, really tragic. But again, difficult work. And you're right, I mean, where's justice if it's not serve you know what I mean for these cases they have to be expedited or else you know that this is what happens and I suppose it's everywhere it's across the board you mentioned there the Glenan case and you're very much I mean your firm and and yourself you've been focused on like this very peculiar particular part of the world where we live in Mm -hmm. has a very unique background and a unique history and it continues you know the legacy the historical um inquests as well so you've been involved in that I mean, how difficult is is that um, piece of work? Again, it's mostly inquests and um, inquiries as well. But again, we're faced with the same ongoing, you know, kind of played out, you know. I think some people um, wouldn't believe what actually went on here. And I think that um, some people still struggle to come to terms with what went on here. And the reality is that, you know, we had a very peculiar history, as you say, mm-hmm. but a history that depicts that effectively we had a state that almost played God that chose who lived and who died. Mm-hmm. And that, in my view, is how stark uh, the reality is. Um, you know, we, all, we often talk about collusion and state collusion, and the reality is that collusion was a fact. It was a, it was a, it was, it was a way of life for mm-hmm. the British government here where they uh, had a direct hand in uh, a number of murders. And the Glen Answer is a classic example we're serving police officers, serving military officers. You know, the reality is those are the ones who are employed to protect and uh, ensure uh, you know, peace and justice, if, uh, as it were, uh, were those who were deliberately taking lives, committing mass murder, and ensuring that those murders were covered up. Um, the one thing that, I have to say, sticks in, uh, in my, well, certainly a bug that I bear a lot uh, is the fact that people talk about collusion in the historical context but the reality is that collusion isn't a historic context mm-hmm. collusion and contingent to this day and you need to look no further than uh, the recent decision by the British government not to hold a public inquiry into Pat Finucane uh, the human rights lawyer who was, was murdered and for me that says all that we need to see you know we have a government who accepts there was state collusion involved we've reviews who ex- that accepted there was state collusion and we have a government that simply still continues to mm-hmm. say we're not going to investigate for me, that is the epitome of what collusion is all about. Yeah, it's the it continued... Continues. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. And I mean, that was shocking. No matter, I mean, we're all used to a lot of the decisions like about the delays, the inaction, but it doesn't stop to shock. I mean, that uh, that was only, wasn't it a month ago or so that, yes. um, you know, they released that statement that they would no longer... Inv- I mean, it's the family just must be, you know, to relive all of that. It's just really, really sad. But again, I mean... We are in a very unique, as I said, part of the world. And I suppose you're practicing in matters that are, you know, probably not being dealt with, certainly not across Ireland and the UK as such. Um, I'm sure there are other jurisdictions that deal with similar matters. Um, But I suppose it's a a great mix of work and your colleagues as well in Phoenix Law. um, I mean, we've talked about some of the cases you've directly been involved in. But there's a whole range of issues um, that they're working on at the moment. Um, the mother and baby homes that I, I spoke about there, um, a judicial review in relation to the investigation to be continued in, in Northern Ireland um, is being undertaken at the moment, as far as I know. Um, hi, I mean, you seem to be everywhere and doing covering so many areas, um, but it seems to 
to work well. And you're quite a small, a small firm in one sense, but to cover such a broad range of issues. I mean, how how do you all manage it? And um, so when when we set up Phoenix uh, Phoenix Law, the whole purpose of Phoenix was that um, it isn't named after any particular lawyer. It's not named after an individual. It, it departs from the traditional solicitor's model. Uh-huh. And there's a very good reason for that. We wanted a, a term that was unique, uh, but not only unique, but it was unique to the practice, but it wasn't named after any single lawyer. And the, mm-hmm. the reason for that is because it's not about any single lawyer. It's about the team. It's about the every single person who plays a part. Mm-hmm. Uh, we removed the traditional hierarchy that solicitor officers unfortunately all too often have yeah. uh, whereby secretaries were used used to be considered you know the bottom of the ladder whereas uh, you know in our practice we deliberately have a situation where we create a team uh, that everybody has an equal part to play so the, the reason we're able to do the work that we do um, I would say is because we're lucky enough to have such a broad spectrum yeah. of talent and I certainly say that even looking around uh, I'm still very lucky to be surrounded by the lawyers that I am um, some you know very formidable characters, uh, some very very bright characters, but also people who have walked in different, they have, have a different life experiences yeah. which have put them where they are, um, and have, I have to say that it's probably through that ethos that we're very very lucky through the team ethos mm-hmm. that we can all work collectively together in a manner that ensures that no person's ever left on their own. Uh, I think that it's crucially important, you know, and able to do mm-hmm. cases of this kind, which are as we talked about. Emotionally in, uh, intense, yeah. you know, mentally intense, <laughs> take a lot of time, you know, putting all those components together, you need to be surrounded by a mm-hmm. strong team. Otherwise, in my view, you would simply not be able to sustain yeah. uh, the, the the pressures that come with it because, you know, there are times, like we've already mentioned, where, you know, for example, clients pass away, friends pass away, mm-hmm. you get decisions that are against you. And with all, the, and fortunately with human rights nature in general, it is often a David versus Goliath fight. It is. And when you're entering into a battle of that kind, you want to ensure that, you know, your, your team, your end is as big as it possibly can be and as strong as it possibly can be. And for, for me, that's where I'm very lucky. I'm surrounded by mm-hmm. lawyers who are much better than me, uh, people who work harder than me, I have no doubt. Um, so, you know, for all those reasons, I have to say I'm very, very lucky with Phoenix, you know. Yeah, gosh, it sounds like a great team. And it's really interesting just to talk about that model um, because... I mean, law firms are still very operate in a very traditional way and, you know, they're known for that. So obviously um, you're embracing new areas of the law. It's constantly evolving, constantly developing, but the team seems to be up to up to scratch for that as well. So that's fantastic. Um, And just earlier this month, we celebrated um, Human Rights Day. Um, And while doing a little bit of work and promotion around that um, here at Activist Lawyer, we were reading about... I suppose we move into a little bit of the, the politics of now, the Conservatives' attitude towards the Human Rights Act in the UK. And we know that Theresa May, in her, her heyday, said that she wanted to get rid of it. <laughs> and I think the Conservatives have been um, putting their own spin in it and saying, you know, it co- emanates from Europe and we want to move away from, from Europe. It's very anti-British. You know, so there's a little bit of tension there around people to see what's going to happen with that. And I'm just... Um, I suppose we had Sinead from um, Phoenix Law in with us. Sinead and myself are both immigration practitioners and I mean we were um, dreading <laughs> seeing this month coming because it's the end of free movement and working with um, any practitioners we're all very tense about what's going to happen. Our clients are very tense. It's a very difficult area to work in. But in a post-Brexit world, which of course is drawing very, very near, um, do you feel, I suppose, that human rights, equality, fundamental freedoms um, that have been built up over decades um, will be diminished, I guess, in any way. 
um, obviously we'll still be able to rely on your some European and international mechanisms for protection. Um, but it seems this whole concept about taking back control of borders, it also will include laws, which will include human rights um, and perhaps those who currently avail of them. How do you see the landscape for human rights? I know it's a very broad question. But <laughs> well, I think I'd probably answer that in, t- in two ways. The first is that um, I think that uh, nobody should be naive. Um, the reality is that this isn't anything new. You, you just mentioned about mm-hmm. Theresa May's initial comments, and that's what this goes right back to. This activist lawyer, you know, these comments about do-gooders, they're not they're not individual. You can't look at them in isolation. What yeah. this is, is a sustained campaign by the British government to undermine and remove uh, human rights values. And this goes, uh, you know, when you look at it in the context of the, the threat the threat to repeal the Human Rights Act, uh, the attempt uh, to, or the taking back our laws from Europe, uh, the uh, proposal to uh, review, judicial review, when you put all of those packages together, the reality is it's, it's unequivocally clear what is going on. It is a sustained campaign by the British government to attack human rights and human rights values. And we, we must look at that in, in, in reality and in context. Mm-hmm. Human rights are not any Rolls Royce rights. They're bottom, they're bottom, uh, they're bottom bucket, very, very basic protections. They're not anything special. And unfortunately, the, pr- the problem that we have in trying to explain human rights to individuals uh, on too many, ta- too many occasions is that people get into their head that human rights are for criminals or human yeah. rights are, are to ensure that people can't uh, get deported to different countries mm-hmm. and etc. And that, that is all just a total misconception. The reality is human rights are very, very basic principles, principles that we rely on every single day yeah. and we may not even know. And what, 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 what frightens me about that in, uh, view in this uh, kind of era of fake news uh, mm-hmm. is that People won't actually appreciate what human rights are until effectively they come knocking until you need them. And, you know, it's a, it's a classic example that how many people were advocating for the NHS a year ago, unfortunately mm-hmm. not, not enough. Yeah. And we've now seen that, you know, in times in which we need them, we all appreciate exactly how important they were. And it's quite frankly, you know, it's something that we have to look at in context. Human rights are not dissimilar. Many people don't appreciate uh, what they are or why they need them until they come knocking. And, you know, the number of examples can be seen, you know, victims of domestic violence, you know, we don't simply know when or who will need them. You know, people who lose loved ones to mental illness, you know, be it in custody or otherwise. Yes, prisoners' rights, you know, those um, refugees who come here unaccompanied, Mm -hmm. they come in such a wide variety. And unfortunately, they can't be looked at in isolation, but the the, the key concept of human rights, in my view, and the, 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 the position that we can never forget, is that human rights are not there as this Rolls-Royce concept. Mm-hmm. They're there as the very basic, the bottom of the ladder protections. That's all they are. And if we're in a situation where we think that you should remove the bottom protections, well, then we're in a very, very dangerous place. A very dangerous place. And unfortunately, the government, a massive marketing machine that they have been, I mean, the rhetoric and the narrative that they've been spinning out for years leading on from Brexit has been so dangerous because it is influential and they do reach the millions and the masses. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out. But you're right, it's a very, very dangerous ground um, to play on. And lots of misconceptions and misunderstandings, as you say, about what that actually is. So again, kind of related, and we we did mention this before, (laughs) sounds like I'm obsessed with Northern Ireland, but it is a very particular place with our own peculiar ways. And we've seen really a new country and a new society built up um, over the last maybe 20 years, 20, 30 years. Um, And many people, you know, should be proud of the work that they've done to contribute first and foremost to the peace process, but also in tackling sectarianism and on many levels racism. 
and inequality. Um, however, how far have we really come? Um, I mean, I'm just thinking of the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer um, and also COVID. We can't escape. If we try to, we can't escape. But, you know, many commentators believe that kind of worldwide issues like this and um, problems that arise will bring inequalities and injustices to the fore, pre-existing inequalities and a new, I suppose, matters that we have to deal with. How have you seen things develop in Northern Ireland? And do you think those two kind of major, um, you know, worldwide issues that happened this year in 2020 have maybe um, kind of unravelled some issues? Um, I, th- I think that uh, whilst we have obviously come a long way, there do obviously continue to be uh, attacks on fundamental freedoms. And in my view, they're, they're the epitome of why the Human Rights Act is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, the two examples you mentioned, uh, in my view, are, are classic uh, reasons why the Human Rights Act is central to um, ensure that uh, individuals are protected. The Black Lives Matter protests um, were... Uh, I have to say, quite reprehensibly um, treated uh, the way in which the police actions, or the way in which the police took action that day, I find, find quite frankly disgraceful. Um, and we didn't hold back in criticising uh, at the time uh, the manner in which the protest, uh, the manner in which the police uh, decided to police the actual protest. This podcast is sponsored by Granite Exchange. Do you need an office or a meeting room space? Granite Exchange is the ultimate serviced office and meeting room facility. Located in the heart of Newry City, it is perfectly placed between Belfast and Dublin. Each office suite is fully furnished and comes with an all-inclusive monthly fee with no long-term contract. All you have to do is show up and switch on. The rest is taken care of. For more information, call 028 3044 2500 or visit www.granite-exchange.com. The reality is, you know, what, what the protesters were there to do is to ensure social distance and ensure That's that right. the COVID regulations are complied with. As a result of the police actions, effectively, those protections were diminished where people end up in bottlenecks and therefore the risks actually increased. And I find that uh, in itself extremely concerning. But not only that, but we must look at it all in context. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is if you remove the right to protest, uh, we are in a very, very dangerous place. Mm-hmm. At, uh, 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 well, we're a very dangerous place, no doubt. Um, I think that the two examples uh, that give me the most concern are that the police interpreted the Black Lives Matter as a protest or gathering that breached the COVID regulations, mm-hmm. but uh, a protest uh, no less than five miles up the road two days later uh, in the, the, the sunny suburbs of BT9 with regards to the Chinese embassy didn't deem that that would be a protest and I have to say that that gives me grave concern yeah. as to what the distinction could be and the, uh, and the second issue is the, the classic one which is the IKEA queue you know the, the, the police seem to have an issue that if a thousand people turn up in a certain area they must all be a gathering of a thousand people well then why if mm-hmm. IKEA has a sale on a Monday morning at 9am and a thousand people turn up are they all not arrested in the mm-hmm. same manner the reality is that it's just quite frankly a ludicrous interpretation of the law. Uh, it was quite frankly a ludicrous approach adopted. I think that those uh, those criticisms are borne out in the recent policing board uh, investigation and human rights report. I think that uh, it is no doubt that that was a, a steep learning curve from from the uh, from the police's perspective. Although I think it's an important one. 
Um, I think that the COVID regulations in general come with grave challenges and obviously all our initial instincts are to support the COVID regulations yeah. to ensure public health protections. However, what we need to be careful about is that when we're dealing with the removal and restriction of such fundamental freedoms that they're clear and concise and we all know what the rules and what the laws are. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think there's been all too often in the recent uh, regulations and the various amendments, a number of examples which would give real grave concern as to how uh, the regulations have been brought into force uh, and the intention behind the regulations, and you need to look no further than you know amendments being done at late at night, mm-hmm. uh, regulations being said to be enforced when they in fact weren't. Yeah. Uh, you know, const- you know, decisions taken to close uh, various shops based on a scientific assessment when the rates for for uh, the rates for uh, the, the 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 spread of the virus were much lower than they were, for example, in religious ceremonies, etc. And there's no question that in many instances that they they would be justifiable, but the Mm -hmm. the reality is that, you know, human rights requires uh, transparent, uh, clear, concise law. And I have to say that at the present time, I would have concerns the way in which they've been policed, out of concerns about the way in which the legislation was enacted and how it's been decided upon. But I think that these are all, unfortunately, learning curves. We are dealing with a pandemic and we have to grapple with it in time. And maybe there are lessons to be learned and going forward mm-hmm. in future and dealing with such, such situations or situations mm-hmm. such as these. I mean, it is very challenging on every level, but I suppose what's apparent is the level of you know, inconsistencies and, as you said, these quite ad hoc decisions that are taken. Um, Jack, you've been kind of watching things very closely as a student, and I think students are at the heart of a lot of the, at least the media coverage, um, and referring in particular to students in Northern Ireland. Um, around COVID and the restrictions and the various, um, you know, um, incidents that we have around arrests as well. What have you, you've been dealing with a couple of... Before I jump into trying to get some free legal advice from you, (laughs) questions around you, obviously with what we were talking about previously with, I think I've done a couple of articles, especially for Queen's and for Activist Lawyer, about how important it is that even though we're in extraordinary times, how important it is to still have scrutiny Mm-hmm. within the executive and how the lack of scrutiny and how they've brought in these regulations basically whenever they want and the, they're leaving it to the last minute. Do you believe that scrutiny should still be there even though in these extraordinary times and they shouldn't be able to push through whatever they want, whenever they want, especially with the regulations regarding businesses and stuff? I think scrutiny is absolutely essential. I think there's uh, one of the main, main concerns is about how the legislation was enacted in the first place under the primary legislation. Uh, arising from that, uh, the decision that was taken uh, to bring in the secondary legislation, the regulations, it effectively did away with that uh, process of scrutiny. I think that over and above that, um, I think that it is essential in any democracy, in any rule of law system whereby there is clear, transparent decision-making processes and that the law is clear and concise. Uh, I think that um, the lack and the absence of scrutiny in this instance has caused considerable problems. I think that uh, the reality is, when we talked about the Black Lives Matter protests, I don't think that the, the, the criticism can be left exclusively at the PSNI's door. I think the criticism is borne out by the way in which the regulations were in fact drafted in the first instance and the lack of guidance that was um, provided to uh, the various authorities. And another example, unfortunately, where I, where I was involved in is the initial decision to close schools. Mm-hmm. The reality is that you know w- we all look back now in, in disbelief, but at one, st- at one point in time, the Minister for Education was point-blank refusing to close schools and it was the matter of of subject of judicial review to try and force his hand. And that's, in my view, a classic example which just showed how the executive in general uh, did and continue to struggle with this pandemic 
uh, in their role as you know the obviously governing the rule of law. Um, so I think that scrutiny is absolutely essential. I think transparency is essential. I think when there's no transparency, there's no guidance, there's no scrutiny. How can you expect you know those who are there to enforce the regulations, such as the police? or other authorities to act in a manner that complies with the intention when in fact the intention isn't very clear. Yeah, yeah, and I think it doesn't allow people to respect the regulations that are brought in if they don't believe that they've been brought in in a proper manner by the executive. But uh, following on from when you're talking about closing schools and stuff, obviously studying, I'm studying at Queen's at the minute and the universities weren't forced to close by the executive. It was kind of left at the university's door to decide whether they wanted to continue with face-to-face classes or go online and obviously at the start of uh, in September we were told by Queen's that our classes would be face-to-face and I know a lot of students signed tenancy agreements mm-hmm. uh, in accommodation because they were told that uh, it would be face-to-face we paid tuition fees face-to-face classes and then a couple of weeks into the semester we were told by the way we're going online so there was no need for you to live in Belfast uh, the quality of education that you're getting online isn't going to be the same as face-to-faces. And I was wondering, is there any, I know you're working with a couple of students in terms of COVID regulations in the Holy Lands, but I was wondering, is there any advice for students that are seeking some sort of remedy in terms of getting tuition fees back? Or I know Queen's usually have a lot of influence in the Holy Lands in terms of previous years, but now, in, now they've just turned a blind eye to students in accommodation? I think the first thing is that students have been scapegoated in, in the current uh, COVID, uh, or the current co- combat of the COVID uh, regulations. Um, I think that unfortunately, you know, we've seen examples where students have been blatantly unlawfully arrested uh, in breach of regulations, and in fact the regulations didn't even exist. Um, that that's well documented. Um, I think there's no, there's no doubt that you know some students have been irresponsible, but in the same way that many people have been yeah. irresponsible in Tesco's, in IKEA, yeah, or exactly. whatever. Yeah. And I think that we have to be really concerned about this, you know, almost uh, stigma that's being laid at students' doors. So I think that the first point is that we must pause and be very careful about this attack on a specific, uh, you know, specific area of the population when it's not really that, you know, it's not really warranted and, you know, you can't, in my view, discriminate in the way in which it's currently the, the, the approach. Like, like, for example, would we really ever even debate uh, a, a rule or a law that would say those people who work away from home aren't allowed to return home for Christmas? No, we wouldn't. And is it a situation if, for example, where we would say, if you work in Belfast but you can't return home to Newry for Christmas, I think it would just be to- quite frankly laughable. Yeah. You know, why are students any different? You know, and I find that you know a, re- a, st- a starting point is really quite concerning that students are being discriminated in this manner. Um, the second issue is about what students should do to combat this, you know, stigmatization or whatever. And I've said from day one in the advice that I've given, and again, it's no secret, I think that the reality here, the problem lies here of the lack of guidance. Why is there no guidance being provided to the universities? And why why is that guidance not being implemented? Uh, Because the reality is, just like you touched upon, we're in a a situation where uh, universities are being told one thing, students are being told another, and we have this mixed messages where students are actually returning to the Holy Lands, for example, premised upon the uh, expectation that classes would be held, that expectation fell away, but yet those students are effectively then locked down away from home. Yeah. And the situation is that, that, in my view, that that in itself is concerning, and that must be addressed by way of 
clear, unequivocal guidance. You know, the situation has to be that um, if the if the universities are not holding classes, well, then that should have been made clear. And I think that whilst um, we are looking looking into the past now and what has happened has happened in many ways, I would like to think the universities could learn uh, in the steps going forward for term two, uh, certainly after Christmas, as to what way this could be. Uh, approached it seems to me that the clear and unequivocal thing, uh, unequivocal remedy would be to ensure there's clear guidance given to students about who w- who wishes to return, and that the expectation that their classes to be held is either honoured or if the classes are not ne- not necessary, then remote learning can be held. Mm-hmm. Then that should again f- uh, factor in to any decision making process the university takes. The one thing that I find quite frankly concerning again is the fact that it's almost too late because some, so many students have embarked upon tenancies, leases, etc. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who are going to be punished the most. Uh, and they were punished, premised upon, in my view, a lack of clear guidance, mm-hmm. not only by the universities, but the guidance that should have been provided by the executive. Yeah, it's like they were forgotten about when, when uh, the executive was putting in regulations. It's like mm-hmm. university students were completely forgotten about until now. But uh, no, thank you. Um, there's huge shortfalls, clearly, and I think the repercussions are going to be felt for years to come. I mean, this isn't, you know, I know it's a pandemic, it's urgent, there's obviously initial challenges, but people will feel the effects of this for years to come. I mean, students who've been impacted, that's just one example. But you can think of the thousands of different categories of people, you know, because of the the shortfalls, the failure to, le- to legislate properly, and as you say, um, offer guidance and prepare proper guidance before taking drastic decisions. So it remains to be seen. Um, I suppose it's a very tense time, but for lawyers, etc., just watching it from afar, it's interesting to see how things evolve or not, as the case may be. But yeah, we're living in interesting times. And, and on that note, in interesting times, the world's changing. We're changing here about Brexit, massive factor here in Northern Ireland. Um, and for anybody listening, Dara, who is obviously keenly following your career, We've only touched on a few of the cases that Dara has worked on. But would you recommend a career in human rights? How have you found it? Have you any advice for any of our listeners who have been tampering with the idea of working within your area? Uh, I would absolutely recommend it. And I have to say, um, one of my biggest gripes, uh, certainly in in the the legal world or the educational law in general, is that there, there is consistently this message whereby students are being directed into the commercial world, yeah. into the corporate giants, and whilst I fully understand that, you know the reality is that, that um, is not the only career path. Uh, certainly not. If, certainly, if, that, if we all adopted that position, there would be no human rights lawyers whatsoever. And unfortunately, you know where we have you know massive corporate giants, uh, you know multinational companies. That's exactly where uh, the David versus Goliath fight mm-hmm. comes from. And uh, I would encourage as many people as possible who believe in, in human rights in general, or who believe in the, you know, in many ways, you know, you use the term activist lawyer, yeah. and uh, maybe it can't be any more important than now because it's with the COVID pandemic, with the current attacks worldwide on human rights generally, with the current attack by the British government on human rights lawyers, mm-hmm. I think it's more important than ever that we have activists and activist lawyers and going forward to take that fight on. Because you know, some people may see uh, you know the term activist lawyer as a criticism. I see it as a badge of honour. Yeah. And I would encourage as many people as possible to adopt uh, that adopt this as a career path. You know, to take on the fight. Because, like I say, as the, as one side uh, gets more powerful and, and and increases their attacks, increases their momentum, and sustained campaign against human rights laws, well, that's when we need more human rights lawyers. 
Absolutely. Look, it's fantastic that anybody can look to your firm and your colleagues as an inspiration and representation of, of it in action and, and how it works. Um, and I suppose it opens so many different opportunities as well. You know, it's not just about practice, but you can go in-house and work in different organisations as well. So not to um, fear that. And activist lawyer, yeah, I mean, stupid kind of end question, but needed or not. And I mean, you just mentioned there were with a, as a badge of honour and I think people did take the term we've mentioned it before and held on to it and are proud to be an activist lawyer and I think um, yeah I mean ne- they're needed more than ever now I would say well look um, Tara thank you so much for coming in that thank was brilliant <laughs> learned a huge amount and Jack um, as well I know you were very following there very yep, keenly very um, so again uh, thanks to Dara for coming all the way in and again Jack for coming in on, on this one as well and helping me out um, and remember you can find us on the www.activistlawyer.com um, for our blogs and if you want to contribute please let us know and thank you to all of our listeners so far we've only had a few series and it's been really a positive response yep, so that's good. been great and we hope to continue um, for the rest of December and on into the new year so we'll say goodbye today from the podcast studio in Granite Exchange building here in Uri. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.